In the name of Jesus, amen. John chapter 2, verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Today we consider this miracle, the wedding at Cana, which happens after Jesus' baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness for 40 days and nights. This is Jesus' first miracle of his ministry. This is when he turns 150 gallons of water into wine, into astounding wine, the best wine that has ever been tasted here in this world. He didn't turn it into grape juice. He turned it into wine. Um, (laughs) Sorry. All right. Um, (laughs) I'll I'll say this. Uh, Churches ought to use wine. For the Lord's Supper. You should not go to a church and commune there if they serve grape juice. They're different things. Okay, I can talk more about that another time. Uh, at the end of this text, it says, and the Lord manifested his glory. The word there in Greek is epiphanied. So that's where we get the word epiphany. So the Lord made manifest, he epiphanied himself. He showed to everyone who he was. And that, that's what this account is. That's what John chapter 2 is talking about. And yet, this is a, a, a fantastic miracle. It's a great and good miracle. But according to me, I don't think it's his best miracle. Right? Um, especially for the first miracle. If you're going to rank all of his miracles, you would say, I wouldn't put this one first. I, this would probably be down the list a little bit. I, th- I can think of better miracles, something like Jesus calming the storm that would show his authority from the get-go or Jesus casting out a demon and says, this is what I'm here to do. That would be an easy sermon to preach or something like he heals the sick and I'm going to restore creation to what it was. That makes sense to me. Or the first thing he does is forgiving sins. That would make sense. And I could preach a, a wonderful sermon on that. But Jesus does this for his first miracle. He turns water into wine for people who already drank too much of it, which is why they ran out, why they ran out to begin with. Uh, hardly anyone knew about this miracle. There was no thanks or recognition to Jesus, only his disciples and the servants. The master of the feast didn't know, nobody else knew. Just those few people. And on top of all of this, On top of all these things, no one needs wine. If you think you do, you have a problem. But nobody needs wine. It is not necessary for life. It is needless. There's no urgency to wine whatsoever. It is completely unimportant. Of all the things that Jesus did, this is the least important of the miracles. Wouldn't you say? They don't need this. They can still have the wedding. They already had enough Uh, to begin with. The wedding can still continue. It'll be a little lame from that point on, but that's it. Um, Feeding of the 5,000 was more important than this one because you need food. You need bread to survive, but you don't need wine to survive. So what problem is he fixing? So the challenge here with this text, with this Wed- the, the, the wedding at Cana with this first miracle is this. 
that because this miracle is so unimportant, preachers like me get stuck and we don't know what to say. We have a hard time preaching on these texts, on this text specifically, because it seems so unimportant and insignificant. So the solution, a lot of times what pastors will do is that they will spiritualize the text. They will take the account and demystify it or allegorize the text as if each part in there means something different. It's pointing to something else beyond the text and that really there's not really much here with water into wine. We can't really say much about that, but what I'm going to do is talk about something else. So what they'll do is they'll take, I don't know, the, the six stone jars and then they say, well, that represents the six days of creation, something like that. Or the third day, that the text says Jesus did this on the third day, that is a connection to the resurrection. Or wine, that must mean communion, or something like this. And what they do then is they get behind the text. They try to make it more significant than it is because it is on its own insignificant. But what am I going to do? I won't allegorize the text. I'm gonna stick to the historical account alone. Uh, and I'm going to show you that there is a great and amazing comfort when Jesus turns water into wine. That that is important and necessary for your salvation even. It helps and bolsters down the assurance of your salvation that the Lord loves you. <clears throat> because I think the significance of this miracle is in its insignificance. The importance of this miracle is in how unimportant it is, how unnecessary and needless this is. The smallness of this miracle points to the greatness of it. God turns water into wine, and this shows you who God is and what he thinks about you. So the text comes... <clears throat> And it begins uh, in, in this way that there's a wedding, they run out of wine, and this miracle comes about not because Jesus planned it uh, like he did with the feeding of the 5,000, not to prove a point like the healing of the paralytic or the blind man, but he does this miracle because someone prayed. That's the point, because somebody prayed. Mary prayed to Jesus, and it wasn't eloquent. There was no address uh, there was no amen. She was just talking to Jesus. And that equals prayer. It's not who you are. It's not how you say it. It's who you're talking to that turns that, those words into a prayer. You're talking to Jesus. That's a prayer now. So Mary's prayer, this is how it goes. It's very short. There's no formal request. It's not elegant or anything. She just says this. She goes, they have no wine. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> It's an indicative statement. She's just stating a fact. They, well, they have no wine. And yet, how does Jesus hear this? He hears this as a request beneath the words. So uh, 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 an example of this, uh, like, for example, at home, when my wife says something like, you know, the garbage truck comes tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I know what she's saying. She's saying, take the trash out. Yeah, I got it. Or when my sons say, I'm hungry, they're, that's not, they're not just stating a fact. They're saying, you, have, you can do something about it. So I'm telling you. So I'm telling you I'm hungry. Now you can do something about it, can't you? Yes, I can. I can feed you. 
Well, that's what Mary is doing. She's going to Jesus. She's just saying, well, they have no wine. You know what to do. I, I'm not going to tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it. But you know what to do. I just need to give you this information. And Jesus' response is this. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. <clears throat> I want to break this down a little bit and spend some time on Jesus' response. Because a lot of times, it, this hits our ears as very disrespectful. Like Jesus is breaking the fourth commandment. He's dishonoring his mother here. He's not. Uh, first of all, the word woman is not a term of disrespect to call your wife, uh, to call your mother uh, woman. Uh, that is e equivalent to today's man. Like if a son says, yes, ma'am. Uh, also, John chapter 19, 26, when Jesus was on the cross, what did Jesus call Mary? He says, woman, behold your son. Mother, behold, so on and so forth. The, the point here is that Jesus is not being disrespectful by calling her woman. This is actually very high respect. So that's the first thing. The second thing is what he says, what does this have to do with me? This is a Greek phrase that we translate this way. This is also not disrespectful. He's asking her, do you want me to do something about this? He's trying to draw this out of her. Okay, you've told me they have no one. Do you want me to do something about this or not? And then he says this, and this is the most interesting part. He says, my hour has not yet come. The hour that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, whenever he refers to his hour, his hour, his hour, he is talking about his death and his crucifixion on the cross. He's talking about that. So what is on his mind even at that wedding? His end. His crucifixion, that's on his mind. His purpose for his incarnation is to take uh, on the sins of the world and to die for us. The reason he became man was not to improve our parties or weddings or to fix these little things. The purpose he came was to die for us, not to give little presents here and there. The reason he came was to be brutally tortured and disfigured to be emaciated, hanging on a cross, choking on his own blood, shedding his blood for our sins, suffering the wrath of God in our place. He came to deal with and fix a real problem. And the real problem is sin. The real problem is guilt and death. He came to deal with that. And these people think that the biggest problem they had that day is what? They ran out of wine. That the big, and, and we do the same thing. We think, look, the biggest problem that I have in my life, Lord, is my finances. They're not adding up. Or the biggest problem that I have is the politics of where I live. Or my job. Or my marriage. Or dating. Or conflict. Or things like this. And the truth is, behind this all, your biggest problem is, has been, and always will be, sin, guilt, and death and hell. That is the biggest problem. <clears throat> now that is all true. And that's what Jesus is saying when he's talking about my hour has not yet come. I didn't come for this stuff like this. I came for real things. This is all true. And yet, what does Jesus do? This is where we see God's heart so clearly like we can in this miracle, uh, like we can't in, in anything else. 
He doesn't give some wine or mediocre wine. He gives the best wine that any mouth has ever tasted and ever will taste. The question here now is why? If he came to do these big things, then why is he doing something so insignificant and unimportant like that? Why is he going out of his way to do something like this? He came to do important things to redeem us from hell. Why would he do something so insignificant and needless? The answer is this. He did so because he loves us. He did it to show who he is, that he is powerful, that he's almighty. He has the power to do this, but also to show you what he thinks of you, that he loves you and adores you. The fact that the Lord did something so unimportant for us shows us how what? How important we are to him. I want to teach this by way of an example. Um, My my sons, they love Legos. They love to build with Legos and, and do these sort of things. And this is something that they wanted for Christmas, a very specific Lego. Um, And if you don't know this already, Legos are the least important thing in the world. (laughs) You could live your whole life without playing with Legos and you'll be fine, as people did for thousands and thousands of years. They're unimportant. You don't need them. So what I did is I still went and I got these Legos for him. Not because Legos matter, but because my son matters. What matters to him matters to me because he matters to me. Do you see this? Jesus does the same thing. What matters to us matters to him because we matter to him. Jesus didn't turn water into wine because wine is important. He turned it into wine because we are important to him. He cares about even the insignificant things that you and I care about. If it matters to us, then it matters to him. That is his great love for us. That God, the God of all heaven and earth, who rules the planets and the galaxies, who speaks and creates all things, He numbers the hairs on your head and he cares about what you care about. This is amazing. So there's two lessons to learn here. One, uh, the first lesson is this, that there is nothing in your life that is too insignificant to pray about. There's nothing. There is no frustration or worry or anxiety, no, no lack or need, not even a want that is too little or small or stupid uh, or useless to care about that Jesus himself doesn't care about also. He cares about what you care about because he cares about you. He will go out of his way for you. And he shows you this most clearly here in this text in John chapter two. The second thing is this. If you can rely upon Jesus for little things, then you can rely upon him for great things. The Bible makes this argument all the time. From the lesser to the greater. Luke chapter 16 verse 10 says, one who is faithful in what? A very little is also faithful in 
much. Matthew 6, 30, Jesus says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more care for you, clothe you? If God gives insignificant and needless things, how much more will he give you significant and needful and important things? The point is this, that you, ought, you can and you ought to rely upon Jesus, not only for small things, not for big things only, or some things, but for everything, all of it. Every single thing in your life, everything in your heart, every thought in your mind, you rely upon Jesus and you turn to him for it. He cares about them. He already knows them before you pray them. So pray them, pray for those things. Jesus did this miracle to show you what kind of God he is and how highly he thinks of you. If he gives you even what you don't need, how much more will he give you what you do need? He came to give you what he needed to give you, and that was himself. He came to give you his body, broken. He came to give you his blood that gladdens the heart of men. He gives you the forgiveness that you need the life and the salvation that you lack. He gives you the best wine, one this world could never give you or buy for you. He gives you his own blood as wine to drink for the forgiveness of your sins. He gives you the wine of his blood for your salvation. And this is because he cares for you this much. So dear saints, cast all of your cares and anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. He does. Be anxious for nothing. Not any single thing in your life be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.